man fell in a hole. He fell in a hole and he couldn't get out. A traveler passed by. He told the man to meditate, to purify his mind, and when he reached Nirvana, all suffering would cease. The man did as he was told, but he remained in the hole. Another man appeared. He explained that the hole didn't exist, and neither, in fact, did the man. It was all an illusion. The man who did not exist was still stuck in the hole that was not there. Another visitor arrived. He instructed the man to perform good deeds to improve his karma, and though he would still die in the hole, he might be reincarnated as something magnificent. Another man looked down from above. He taught the man to pray five times a day facing east and to follow five important tenets. If he was faithful, one day, perhaps, the divine would set him free. The man prayed as best he could, but he was losing strength, and in the hole he remained. something different about him. He called down to the man in the hole and asked him if he wanted to be free. Good morning. The, uh, I hope today, by the time you leave, uh, that you have a firmer grasp on what you believe, that you would be encouraged and that you would have a sense that uh, what you call your faith is as real as anything else that you can think of. And so as we look at the, the video and we recognize it is just an illustration it, all, it does illustrate how different our faith is. Very, very different. Not because of who we are, but because of who rescued us. And so as we look today, we're, we are going to look at the resurrection in a very different way. Oh, and that's going to be tough, okay. So if I was to ask you, why does it matter that there was a resurrection some of you might say, well, it's really important because it's the basis of Easter and at whatnot. But realize that the resurrection really is, it, it, it matters in the sense that if the resurrection occurred, the domino effect of that really comes down to the point where we as believers have a basis for our faith. It's our rock. 
It's what we, and as we look at the stones and as we were looking at the cornerstone and we laid those 12 stones and they had the capstone as, as Ben shared with us the last time and how Jesus is not only the cornerstone but the capstone, the resurrection is at the center of all of that. It's really the capstone of what he accomplished. And so today as we look at uh, this this thing called the resurrection and how it has an effect on our life, I want you to recognize that at least in my world, when I go to work, I can tell people are, are wondering, they're asking questions. What's going on? What is this thing that's going on? And, and pandemics and, and the government's trying to solve problems and different things. And you realize that they don't have a rock. Many of them are asking questions and they're wondering, is someone going to solve this whole thing? And recognize this morning that that is, the pers- that is the perspective of someone who does not have the rope and does not have a firm grasp on the rope. And my intention is, is by the end of this time that you will have such a firm grasp on the rope. Not that, you're, not that you climb out, but that you have a firm grasp that, that you understand that Jesus is the one who, who actually brings us the security and our foundation and hopefully I can help you to just turn your eyes upon Jesus a little bit more. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul wrote, The person without, without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. And I recognize that you can throw all kinds of facts at someone and you can, you can kind of show them what the resurrection is and, and many things about it. But the Spirit is what gives us the ability to discern spiritual things. And without the Spirit, uh, and many times you can talk to someone who, and you think, boy, I've just really explained this, and, and they don't get it. It's because the Spirit. And it's, so it's about the Spirit, but at the same time, we recognize our faith is really based on some things that are very, very foundational. Erwin Lutzer uh, writes about theologian called Wolfhart Penneberg, and he said this, that the evidence for, for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except, except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event. How many times have you seen someone be raised from the dead in the circumstances that surround that? But the second is even more important. If you believe it happened... You have to change the way you live. If the resurrection is true, if, if Jesus did actually rise from the dead, that means that he is God and that everything he said is what? It's true. It's true. And if that doesn't make you change your life, then you are not accepting really what happened. there. You're not getting the connection between what God did and what he was trying to show to us as well as uh, what Christ accomplished. So... Why does, it, why does it matter what I believe about the resurrection? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And so the entire of Christian, uh, entirety of Christianity really rests on this one thing. If this is false, if someone could prove to me that the resurrection is false, I would just pack up my Bible and store it away, and I would start looking for something that I could put my faith into. But if the resurrection is true, 
then everything, everything rests on it. And so we recognize that the resurrection is a very unique thing, and it's, 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 a, it's a gift to us as God has loved us so much that his son would come and die for us. And then three days later, to confirm his acceptance of the payment for sin, and how did he do that? He resurrected his son. Son, It was his approval and his redemption of the person who had been with him, the son who had been with the father through all of creation. And so did Jesus really rise from the dead? Could you prove that to someone right this morning? If I asked to sit down with you and could you explain maybe why you believe what you believe and, and could you really explain that the resurrection it has many, many merits that it did actually happen? When I was growing up, I can honestly tell you, I had no basis for that. I thought it was just something that happened in a church. We talked about it. It was a story that happened in the Bible, much like every other story in the Bible. And I really had no understanding that the resurrection is actually something that is not just religious. It's actually historic. It's as real as someone landing on the moon. How do you know that's true? Well, you've heard it. You've read it. You've heard people speak about it. It happened not because you were necessarily there, but because of the evidence that's behind it. And the resurrection is the same way. It is something that happened that we have the benefit of actually seeing. And so the very first thing that Jesus did was he told, and it is is no secret, Jesus actually told his men before he died, that he was going to be resurrected. And he told them, and they, didn't, they were fearful. And Mark, uh, in Matthew 17, it says, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief because they thought he was going to be their Savior and take over things and, and take over Rome and everything else. But Jesus predicted it ahead of time. He said it was the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? That Jonah would be what? In the belly of a fish for what? Three days. And after that, he would raise. And at the time, they're like, sign of Jonah. But later on, not only, what's really neat about that is when he said sign of Jonah, what does that tell you about the story of Jonah? If there was an Old Testament story that is kind of hard to believe, like, really? Three days in a... And then you recognize Jesus referenced it. What he did is just validated the Old Testament, and particularly that story. If Jesus talked about it and Jesus rose from the dead, did did it really happen that Jonah went into the belly of a fish for three days? It's all connected. What the resurrection does is gives us the the essentials to understand everything that we might even doubt. Something's like, wow, well, if that's not true, but but it also can be proved to be true, it changes everything. The empty tomb. So the empty tomb is a humongous thing as you look at the resurrection of Jesus because this is a historical thing, a historical fact that is so well established that if you were to look into it, you'd recognize that it is something that happened in just as much as any other historical thing that you believe in, such as Abraham Lincoln was our president. You would have evidence that is so heavy to that point that the the tomb is empty that you could find that to be a very compelling reason why we believe that Jesus was resurrected. He predicted he would be resurrected, and then the tomb was empty. And there are a lot of different reasons why the tomb might be empty, but let me just explain a, a few things with that. The question would be is this, who stole the body? 
So if the tomb is empty, it was, it was, and they knew exactly which tomb it was, Joseph of Arimathea, they, he, the tomb was there. It was, it was sealed by a two-ton stone. It was guarded by 16 of the Praetorian Guard. These, were, these guys were not just some of the uh, you know, E1 type people. These were people who actually w- were trained to actually fight off a whole battalion of soldiers. They could hold ground in that way. And so it was not only guarded, but it was actually sealed. And as Jesus was put in that that tomb. He was wrapped up in grave clothes, and he had been pierced with a spear, and he had drug a uh, drug cross after being after being lashed and lashed and lashed, and, and really actually to the point where he was going through uh, dehydration. We recognize that his situation when he went into the, the tomb was not one of someone who would just get out of it. And so the questions are, is, did his friends take him? Uh, or do, did the Romans take him? Or did, did the Jews take him? And the answer to those is there's no good reason why any of those people would take him. And as we look through those things, it really does give us a sense for what it is that gives us this truth about the resurrection. The tomb was secured. As I mentioned, they put a two-ton stone in front of it, put 16 guards around it, and these guards were to secure the tomb because they remembered that what Jesus said was true. And so uh, it says that this, uh, in verse 64, it says, so give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tombs secure by putting a seal on the stone and, pose, and posting a guard. And once that happened, whoever was going to take this, this body out of, the, out of this tomb would have to overcome 16 uh, trained men who were killing machines, literally killing machines. They would be like Rambo. And it, as we realized, there was no skirmish, there was no struggle, there was no blood anywhere. It, the tomb was just open. The two-ton ro- rock was rolled back, and his grave clothes were there. There wasn't, there wasn't a skirmish. It wasn't because of something that got overtook or a, like some sort of military action. It was because that Jesus must have said what he meant, when, or meant what he said when he said, I was going to rise again. If you were a disciple at the time of the crucifixion, you were fearful for your life. And why would that be? Well, if you were a part of this, this kind of this new, uh, I'd call it a rebellion as Roman looked at, Rome looked at it and the Jews looked at it, Anyone who was connected with Jesus feared for their life because they thought, if they did that to Jesus, they're going to do that to what? To me as well. And so there was a genuine fear, and that's why the, the, the disciples did what they did. And in Mark 14, 50, it says, Then everyone deserted him and fled. As soon as they, they saw these, those things going down, they fled for their lives. And then in John 20, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week, this is Sunday, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. They thought they were next, and they were just going to go down the line, and they were just going to execute everyone. And so there was an understanding that they had, they had, their lives were at stake. 
And what we see is that the, the lives that the people who had fled all of a sudden became very bold for, for their witness. And, uh, and what we see in Acts 3.15, it says, you killed the author of life. This is Peter speaking. Peter is speaking to his, uh, some people he would have looked up to all of his life as a Jewish boy and as a Jewish man. And he was speaking to the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, etc. And as he spoke to them, and he was uh, uh, basically giving credence to Jesus rising from the dead. He said, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Can you imagine the courage it would take to say, you killed him. You, you killed him. And then he said, we are witnesses of this. We are witnesses of the resurrection. John Stott, who's a best-selling author and is a professor, and he's one of the leading theologians of the world today, he says this, perhaps the transformation of the disciples is the greatest evidence for all of the resurrection. When Jesus died, they were heartbroken, confused and frightened, but within less than two months, they came out of hiding, full of joy, confidence and courage. What can account for this dramatic transformation? Only the resurrection together with, the, with Pentecost, which followed soon after. What John Stott said was, there is no other reason why they would have had a change of heart other than the resurrection. As we read in Acts 5, 27, it says, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, feared for their life to the point where they filled Jerusalem and accused of that. These men believed what they saw. The change in their lives is so evident of that. And then in Acts 4.13, it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And not only been with Jesus, but they had witnessed him resurrect, and they had seen his hands, and they had ate, eaten with him, and, and they had spent time with him as Jesus appeared to his disciples. And the, really, the crux to all of this is you take all of those scared disciples and apostles, and you recognize that they were fleeing for their lives, and you recognize how they all died. They, they didn't die in some retirement home or a nursing home somewhere, or they didn't die this way. They didn't die the normal course. And as far as we know from the, from the Fox Book of Martyrs, this is how they died. These are the men who fled at the time of the crucifixion. They did this. Let me see if I can get that to turn up. Andrew, Peter's brother, crucified. Bartholomew, beaten, then crucified. James, son of Alphaeus, stoned to death. James, son of Zebedee, beheaded. John, exiled to his faith, died of an old age. Thank heavens we have the book of uh, Revelations. John, exiled for his faith, died out of old age. Judas, not, ex not the Iscariot Judas, he was stoned to death. Matthew, speared to death. Philip, crucified. Peter, crucified upside down. Simon, crucified. Thomas, speared to death. Matthias, stoned to death. Do you know why they were killed? Because of their faith. Because at some point in time, they were asked, do you stand 
at, at your witness to say that you really do believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he was resurrected. That was the question that got them killed. And at any point in time, if you took 12 ordinary people, especially a bunch of fishermen and people who just kind of got together, and if they were to make up some sort of a, a hoax and, and you got them into uh, an interrogation situation and, and you told them, you're going to die if you don't tell us the truth, you know what would happen? You wouldn't have got one of them to, to they just said, you know what, we made this up. It was on a Friday night. We thought this would be really fun. And so they just kind of came up with this whole thing. That's not what happened. What they saw is very important. You see, many other faiths, as you watch that video at the very beginning, many other faiths were founded on the fact that of some idea or some vision that some person had. I, I had a vision and God said to write these down on these plates of whatever it is. Or I had a vision and God said, write these things down. Christianity is completely different. It's not based on something, some vision. It's based on a thing that happened to the Son of God. And it has so much evidence behind it that people who look into it have this overwhelming sense of, oh my, I've never realized how this is a, a thing that is hinged in history and not just some set of creeds or, or beliefs or a vision that someone has. You take every other religion and, or, or reaching some state of nirvana or a state of enlightenment, that is so different than Christianity. Christianity is different than that because God lowered the rope down, and he took his son to earth, and he historically intersected with us, and he, he sent him to the cross, allowed him to go through the punishment that, that brings us peace and forgiveness for our sins. And that's completely different as he carries us out of that hole that we had because of sin. And these disciples understood that what happened that day was very, very, very monumental. And the witnesses, when you, read the, the, when you read the New Testament, you realize that the people who wrote that New Testament were the people who died on that list. How does that establish the credibility of their, their witness and their writings? It, it does in a powerful way because they really believed what they said they believed. And again, 1 Corinthians 15, which is an important passage in the resurrection, it says, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. This was written to people who were still living, which means that the veracity of what they said could be tested. And they could say, did you really? See? Yeah, I saw this, which is so much different than saying, I, I got a vision from God, and so I wrote these things down. Or this is the path to enlightenment. Or this is the path to truth. Very, very different thing. And so the, the, the resurrection being established as it was by eyewitnesses at the very time that Paul was writing this has lots and lots of credibility that adds to their witness. The existence of Christianity today, it should have been snuffed out. At the crucifixion, it just should have, been gone, it should have gone away. And it would have went away because those disciples fled. And if Jesus truly didn't raise from the dead, if Jesus wasn't God, it wouldn't have made, through, it wouldn't have made it through the first century. And then we look at Paul's conversion and we realize that, wow, a man named Saul who killed Christians all of a sudden, one day, changed his whole life. Why? Well, it's much like someone who comes to know Christ today, maybe a little bit in a different way, but we recognize that that 
that change in our lives comes because of it. Also, the exponential growth of the church in the first century, thousands were coming to Christ. And you have to ask yourself, wow, that testimony of the resurrection was the determining factor of that. How many of you actually believe that you could look in a history book and find that uh, the, the resurrection and the empty tomb and those things were historically recorded? Just raise your hand, those of you who are here this morning. Okay. Did you ever see one in your history book when you were going to school? Did you ever hear anybody talk about it, one of those in school? And so, and you like me, I, I didn't either. But I just want to give you just some things that some experts in history have said as they have explored and realized that, you know, when you take your, your car to a mechanic, they, ha- they know so much more about things than you do. So for me to explore history and to, to do it in, in my own way, I would, I'd be able to read certain things, and that's powerful. But when an expert tells you something, you recognize the power of it. Paul Meyer, who's a professor of ancient history at Western Michi- Michigan University, He said this, if all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is indeed justifiable according to the canons of historical research research, to conclude that the tomb where Jesus was buried was actually empty on the third day. What he is saying is this, if you take the weight of the evidence, there's one thing that's sure, that tomb, it was empty because everybody was looking for a body and they were coming up with excuses. Dr. Brooks Westcott, he's an English scholar and also a literary giant. He's actually a Greek. Taking all the evidence together, is not too much, it is not too much to say that there is no, no historic incident or event better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. Taking all the evidence together, after all the historical research, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you thought, why wasn't this in my history book? Nothing but the empty seed of assumption, meaning that you assume that it's not true first, that it might be false, could be a suggested, the idea of a deficiency in the proof of it. And what he is saying is this, if you come into the assumption of that, you might not be able to find it because you're just looking at all the places where you don't want to look or where, where you prefer to look. And so we see, and then we look at just the whole volumes of research that are there. Thomas Arnoldson, a headmaster of rugby, he wrote three volumes of Rome. And this was his conflu- conclusion from history. I have been used for many, many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer that the great sign that God has given us, Christ died and rose again from the dead." We recognize that history supports this, and yet at the same time, we don't hear this. And, that, and that's why I really want you to hear this, because you need a good grip on your faith. When there's a pandemic, what do you hang on to? When there is a doubt of what is God in control of this world, and, and the questions that you hear, you need a good grip on the rope. Well, what if you look at skeptics who actually looked into the resurrection? One of my favorites is Dr. Frank Morrison. 
He was a, a journalist trained in legal practices. And Dr. Frank Morrison just loved the story of Jesus, but he thought that they, there was some mystical ending that they sort of inserted when Jesus was resurrected. They thought, oh, it's such a great story. But all of a sudden, they, they inserted this, and he was, he was kind of put out by this. So he actually, he actually financed himself to go to Palestine and to research the, the resurrection because he just thought, I just need to put this myth to an end because it's such a beautiful story of Jesus, his life and how he helped people and, and how he was a healer and many things. And what happened to Frank Morrison was he tried to write a book and the book that he ended up writing was Who Moved the Stone? And it's the empty tomb. And the first chapter of the book is this, the book that refused to be written. He intended to write a book that would refute the resurrection, but after doing the evidence, a, a person who is skilled in the art of, I should say the science of actual legal practices, said the book that refused to be written because it couldn't be written because the truth was that it led him to a point where he recognized that it was all, it was all true. And then there are, there are some lawyer and judges. And I know Ben's here this morning, and there are many others. And this isn't something I've run by him at all. But if you were to recognize that if you were to just take the evidence that we have, um, we recognize that the evidence for the resurrection is huge. But if you, were to be a, if you were to try the case of the resurrection in court, you would have a bunch of evidence, and you have conclusions. Did this really happen, or did it not? Well, Dr. Simon Greeley, the greatest legal mind of the history of America, and he was a professor at the law, uh, Harvard Law School, he wrote three volumes on the laws of legal evidence were used to, which were used to evaluate evidence in the court of law to see if it was credible. He was a skeptic, not a believer. He was a skeptic, not a believer. He was a skeptic, not a believer. Why do I say that? Because he would be a neutral, if not a somewhat one-sided uh, person to come in and, and establish some truth as to what the actual evidence says. He used to mock and put down Christians in his law classes at Harvard. One year, some of the Christians in the law class got tired of it and challenged him to take his three volumes and to apply his expertise and his principles to the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. He had to accept the challenge or he would obviously lose face in front of his students. So he became a believer in the process of this and went on to write a very large book on the testimony of the four evangelists as evaluated by the three legal volumes. And this is what he said. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the best established facts of history according to the laws of legal evidence administered in the court of justice. A skeptic? with the evidence turned into a believer. Why? Because the evidence points to the truth of the resurrection. And I know you had to sit through all of that, and that was painful. I used to be a math teacher, so I could see the, the, the glossing of the faces. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I hope he just gets done with that. But it's important, because you won't hear that unless you look for it. The transformation of your life today. How does the resurrection change your life? Well, I hope it changes you in the way, in the sense of this, that when you go home today, that you will have a very firm grip on Jesus and that your eyes will be fixed on Jesus and that you will recognize he's the author and the perfecter of your faith and that you recognize that there are a lot of storms in life that can be very difficult and where your hope is placed is very, very important and where your trust is placed in times like this is very important too. And I hear people watching YouTube videos and, and they're going, what's going on? 
on here. I think, the, I think this is the end times. Guess what? That's not the point. Yes, we're looking for the blessed returning, the blessed hope of Jesus, but our eyes are fixed on Jesus because when Peter was getting out of the boat, what did his eyes fix on? The ocean that was tumultuous or what? It was on Jesus because Jesus knows what's going on. And if you belong to Jesus, he has control of your situation and he is the person who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Why does the resurrection matter to my oikos? You're wondering, what is oikos? It's kind of a Greek yogurt, I think, as I understand. If you go in the grocery store, maybe it's there, maybe it's not in these times. But you recognize that my oikos is this. It's a Greek word for household. And what it means is the people who I have a relationship in life. It could be the person that you greet every morning as you come into work. Or the person who you, who, who you go to the bank to and you seems to be the teller that you always go to. And you kind of have some conversations with that person. You maybe know how many kids they have and you have some relationship with them. That's your oikos. How does the resurrection affect your oikos? Well, the reality of the resurrection in my life, in your life, should give me such a security that God not only took his son to earth and allowed him to pay for our sins, but if he did that, that means that he created this whole earth, that the Bible is true just as it is written. And then if that is true, then you are not an accident or a mistake and neither is your oikos. Neither is your friend who you know from work. Because they're not just some sort of chemical, mis just kind of a process of goo coming to, to be a person. But they are actually someone who God has actually in advance known and wants to know in a personal way. And my, my understanding of the resurrection makes me understand that everyone has value and that God loves them. And a lot of people are asking themselves, am I loved? Do people even care? And at this time, I realized that there have been a lot, of, a lot of difficult things. I've heard of a lot of just mental illness during this period of pandemic and maybe more suicides and things that are very difficult because people are asking these questions and they're wondering. And if we can connect ourselves to the fact that God, God established his love for us when Jesus came down on the cross, and then he gave that validity to that by the resurrection Boy, that goes a long way to explain, do I matter? Do I have a purpose in life? If Jesus died on the cross, you have a purpose in life. And if you belong to him, guess what? You were a child of God, and you don't even belong to this world. You're like, we have a pandemic going on. And I know that's difficult, but if you were looking at it from God's perspective, he's like, that's my child. That's my child, Mark. That's my child, Sean. And I have them, and I hold them, and I've got them. And that changes the way we see things because it allows us to understand things from a different perspective. The miracle of the resurrection results in a choice for each of us. See, if it was just an eightfold path or it was uh, some sort of a, a thing where I had to do this or that and follow this, these, this regime, it would all kind of depend on me. But the resurrection really ends up doing this. It forces a choice. Because if it's true, I have to decide true or false in my life. And if I decide that it's true in my life, I'm accepting Christ as who God, is, who God made him to be, which is my Savior. But if I choose not to decide, I've also made a choice too as well. 
And so this morning, as most of you are sitting here and you've probably made that choice before, recognize that the choice has to be made because God didn't leave it up to us just to make a choice. He is the Savior of the world. It's just a matter of whether we accept it or not. Leon Morris wrote this, when anyone sees that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, he is challenged to do something about it. He cannot regard this as a curious piece of knowledge to be put away safely in some file of comparative religion. He may take it seriously, which, in which case he responds to it with a wholehearted faith. He puts his trust and faith in Christ and receives that gift of life that means that he will die in any meaningful sense. Or he may reject it and withhold faith, in which case he numbers himself among those who do not know life and never will. There is a choice that we need to make, and that choice is based upon what Jesus did on the cross, the resurrection, and our relationship. And, and if you are new with us, you will, you will maybe see this as new, but if you've been with us for a long time, this will not be a surprise to you, that if I, someone is to ask me, how do I have a relationship with Christ? About a week and a half ago, I, I shared with a, uh, a man who was here who was asking lots of questions, and I wanted to, to kind of just share with him the truth of the gospel because I, I could sense that there was a spiritual hunger stirring with him. And what I ended up sharing was a long version of what this is, which is, which is uh, A, B, and C. In order for me to have a relationship with Christ, uh, there is this admittance of sin. And today, can you admit that you're a sinner? Just, I want you to raise your hand, even if you don't have much of a, um, raise your hand if you admit that you're a sinner, okay? Raise your hand, if it's an all play, if you're out there, raise your hand too, okay? You're admitting that you're in the hole, that you're laying in the hole and that you can't do anything about it. And you can't climb out of the hole because you've tried before and you tried to be good and you realize it didn't happen. And you also need to believe that Jesus not only threw the rope over the edge, but he climbed down onto the cross and he died in your place. And he died specifically for you because he knew how much he loved you. And he knew that you couldn't pay for your own sin because you're not perfect, but he was. And you need to choose, and that's this forced situation that the resurrection puts us in where we just need to choose to follow who he really is, which He's the God of the universe. He was with God the Father at the beginning as the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters and you realize all of them were in this place and he was the person who we trust as our Savior. And we need to choose that. And if we could admit that, we can just, God, I, I've tried everything that I can, could and I fail. And I keep displeasing you. And we can believe that Jesus Christ did rise and that he is God and that he's our Savior and that he died in, the, in our place in the cross for all of our sins. Not only the ones in the past, but tomorrow, guess what? You're going to have a thought and it's not going to be a godly thought. It could just be something off track. And he died for that as well. And we need to choose, just like people who are young, usually young, sometimes old too, come up to people, one male, female, and they do what? They say two words. The guy says, blah, 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 blah. He goes on and on and on. Everybody's waiting for him to get done. And at the end of it, he says, do you take this? And they say, I do. They choose. They choose. And everybody's like, amen. They said, I do. Great. We're about ready to get out of here. And guess what? You're close, too. You're really, really close. You're very close. You need to choose. And when I was sharing with this man the other night, I just said, you need to say, I do. You need to pray. I don't know how to 
kind of, I don't know how to do that. I could just tell. He was just reluctant. And I, I, and I just said, you just need to talk to him like he's sitting right here beside you. You need to say, Jesus, I, I, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, and I can't believe how, what a gift that is, but I choose to receive it. And as, as he received this sort of gift I had given him, I could just see, boom, he got it. He understood. And that's how we receive it. It's in faith that we receive it. Because the truth is, is that we have all fallen into a hole. It's called sin. And we need to fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And so LaDonna is going to sing that song, Fix Your Eyes on Jesus, and Turn Your Eyes on Jesus. And then we'll go ahead and pray and just share one more thing after that. Um. Many times, I know I'm not in the screen of live stream, but that's okay. You'll hear my voice. Um, I'm, many people in the body of Christ encourage us in our walk. And there's a more mature man of Christ who um, really touched my heart with his love for the Lord. And he borrowed me a couple discs and with tears in his eyes. He says, I listen to this every night. I'd really love for you to sing a song from this tape. And anyway, he knows who he is, but it can be a benefit to all of us because many of you are familiar with this song. I just encourage you to sit and enjoy the lyrics as I get my poop in a group. Um, this man definitely has hope in the resurrection. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Just close your eyes if you want to. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory. Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. Over us sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. 
His word shall not fail you, he promised. Leave him, and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Join with me in the chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. What a beautiful song. Most of you have heard of D.L. Moody. He lived during the 1800s and was one of, the, one of the most influential men of his time. He said this as he was approaching death. He said, someday you will read in the newspapers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe one word of that? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the Spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the Spirit will live forever. What a promise that the resurrection has for us, that we will live forever. And as the band comes up, I'm just going to close in prayer. Father, thank you so much. You didn't just leave us little breadcrumbs to, to find you and to recognize that you love us. You sent your son down to earth to live a life as a man, to live in a way that would be honoring and glorifying not only to you, but would save us, that would allow us to have a relationship with you, that we would be friends of you, that we would know you in a personal way. I'd help us to, to just live that way, that we would live in a way that, rec that recognizes the, that the resurrection is true, that we would not only love you and serve you, but we would see the world and the things that are going on around us, not as others see it, but from your perspective that you have us, that we can trust in you and that you care for us, that you love us so much that you would take your very own son and that you would allow him to pay the penalty for our sins. We thank you for that. We give you the glory for that. And we... Uh, we as we sing this last song, just recognize that the resurrection is just your key point of how much you love us. Thank you for that, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.